Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And for the past week or so, we've been struggling with the mystery of colonization and global capitalism. In the 19th century, suddenly the world seems to be knit together by webs of trade and finance and colonialism that are kind of new. Why did that happen? And particularly for this researcher, why did Britain, this tiny island off the coast of Europe that had never been very important for world history up until this point, become the spearheading leader of this drive towards globalization and capitalism? Yesterday, I talked about theories looking to explain the motivations of colonizers, and I'll just recap that very briefly. So if you ask your friendly Marxist out on the street, why did colonialism happen? It's the Industrial Revolution, stupid. Factories start to produce more and more stuff, but they start to overproduce stuff, and so capitalists no longer have a profit. To generate a profit, they need to open up new markets for their manufactured goods. And also, they need to find new markets for the raw materials that make their goods. So, the empire happens because of the whims of the industrialists. You know, there's a thing by Lenin, the title of which says it all. Imperialism, the final stage of capitalism. But, yesterday I talked about a differing view, the view of Cain and Hopkins. The real story is the super elite rich who deal in services like banking, insurance, and finance. Imperialism is a way, an attempt, to recreate certain kinds of financial systems in other countries so that they can generate stable and high-paying investment opportunities. It's not the Industrial Revolution, stupid. It's the banks, stupid. But there's something troubling about the Cain and Hopkins story, because it leaves out the Industrial Revolution, mainly. The, the, the industry is a bonus prize. The fact that factories and railways and stuff pops up all over the colonized world is just something that's a little bit extra good for Britain and for the colonies. But it doesn't also explain how it happens and why it happens at this particular time. So to explain that, today I want to turn to the technology of colonialism. Because at the same time that financiers were looking for new places to shift the giant pool of money to, there was also a slow advance of technology that allowed them to do this. The giant pool of money might have provided the motive, but new forms of technology that Kane and Hopkins largely ignore provide the means. The big headline for us today is that through the combination of technology and finance, Britain was able to gain the upper hand in deal after deal after deal after deal. They had control over transportation, communication, finance, and warehousing. This allowed them to sit at a privileged position of the new global economy and largely profit off of it up until at least the First World War. So I'm going to start off with a quote. And it's by a guy named McGregor Laird, who is the creator of the gunboat, and it comes in the 1830s. We have the power in our hands, moral, physical, and mechanical. The first, based on the Bible. The second, upon the wonderful adaptation of the Anglo-Saxon race to all climates, situations, and circumstances. The third, bequeathed to us by the immortal Watt. By his invention, every river is laid open to us, Time and distance are shortened. 
If his spirit is allowed to witness the success of his invention here on earth, I can conceive of no application of it that would receive his approbation more than seeing the mighty streams of the Mississippi and the Amazon, the Niger and the Nile, the Indus and the Ganges, stemmed by hundreds of steam vessels, carrying the glad tidings of peace and goodwill towards men into the dark places of the earth which are now filled with cruelty. Of course, the invention of the immortal Watt, the steam engine. So we'll be talking about three broad categories of technology of imperialism. The first will be communication and economy, the second will be health, and the third will be war. The speed of communication and transport explodes from 1800 to 1900. In 1830, it took eight to 12 months for a letter to get from Britain to India. Because of monsoons and irregular shipping, it would be about two years for a reply to get a response. But by 1850, because of new train networks, it took about a month to get an important letter from Britain to India. And in 1870, because of telegraph systems, it took only five hours. Just imagine that. In about 50 years, the speed of communication goes from a conversation happening in two years to a conversation happening in 10 hours. And we're going to talk about the individual components of that transportation and communication revolution. The first, of course, is the railway, which we've already talked about quite a bit. Now, the railway was a really, really good site for the giant pool of money because it was expensive and people used it. And one of the best investments that you could get is the Indian railways because the British government had a guarantee that they would run a profit. The Indian railway became one of the largest in the entire world, and they changed the way that Indian life ran. Uh, they allowed foreign trade to get to India so that exchange for raw materials and manufactured goods could happen. They consolidated British rule by allowing there to be stuff like postal services and quick troop transports, and it allowed for there to be a new kind of national unified experience of Indians. If you imagine the trains going through India, you'd have the first class cabins, which would be the British people from Britain. The second class cabins would be Anglo-Brit people who might have been born there. And the third class cabins would have the Indians all there together, caste by caste, religion by religion. This experience of the unified train journey might have been one of those common experiences on which the imagined community of the nation was built on. This also allowed the creation of the postal system, which wasn't just good for, say, exchanging letters, but was also kind of a micropayment system because people could pay one another through the post office. The other big invention of the time is the steamship. And there's three big developments in the steamship. There's the steel hull, propellers, and new kinds of engines. So the big impetus for this is the cheapening of steel. Steel is a special kind of amalgamation of iron and a bunch of other stuff that I can't remember right now that is significantly stronger and more useful. So once steel gets cheaper because of improvements in production like the Bessemer process, it allows the production of steel-hulled ships. Now, steel is so much stronger than wood that a two-and-a-half-inch iron grater does the work on a ship of a two-foot 
oak beam. A steel ship weighs about as quarter as much of an equivalent wood ship. And it can be made to have slim hulls so it can go through oceans a lot easier. And also there's the big point that wooden ships were getting increasingly expensive because Europe was running out of trees because Britain was eating them all up in production of ships to fight wars like the Napoleonic Wars. There are other technical improvements as well. Uh, Early steamships were run by big paddles. Imagine a Mark Twain-esque paddle boat going down the, the river. But people figure out that it's a lot more efficient for there to be a propeller underwater than a big paddle, and this allows steamships to navigate high, rocky seas a lot easier. And then in about 1850, when these advances come online, travel by steam on the oceans becomes much, much, much more common. And this leads colonizing powers to build ports. Because of the increased power available because of steam engines, they could now build ports not just where there were natural harbors, but pretty much anywhere where it was useful. And so these new port cities became some of the centers of imperial power around the globe, and now they're some of the most important cities of the world. Port Said, Karachi, Dakar, Singapore, Hong Kong are all examples of artificial ports that become incredibly important to colonizing powers. But there's a problem with these new steel and iron ships, and that is that they're super expensive. This leads to two big developments. The first is kind of obvious at this point. Who pays for them? Well, the giant pool of money pays for them. The steel and iron steamship boom is another investment opportunity for the financiers in London. But also, it led to a change of work and organization. Because they were super expensive, you needed to keep them running all the time and running efficiently. So this meant that you needed to be able to trust your workers. This led to the development of professionalism and bureaucratization in the steamships, a new kind of organizational structure, which we're going to turn to later when we talk about the organizational revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries. The example of the steamship can also give us another insight into the advantages of Britain, because what do steamships run on? They run on coal, and who has all the coal? Britain. And once you get steamships, bulk goods like coal become a lot easier to ship. Nine-tenths of all British exports by weight in 1913 were coal. Just think of that. Nine out of ten pounds that were shipped on British ships out of Britain were coal. Coal is an important part of this story. Another technological invention that helps colonialism is the telegraph. People have been making telegraphs throughout the 19th century, and there had always been this big dream of running underwater telegraph lines so that people could communicate from colony to colony. But this was really hard because telegraph wires are metal, and metal does not like salt water, which is what the ocean is. And so the big change comes from gutta percha, which is this resin that comes from a Malaysian tree that is an early kind of formable plastic. And gutta percha was really, really good at insulating the wires that the telegraph lines needed to be made out of. Once gutta percha gets put onto the international market, then the worldwide underseas telegraph cable building boom happens. 
Predictably, who funds it? The giant pool of money, because predictably, it's incredibly expensive and high-tech. It costs about 200 pounds per kilometer to construct the cables. And when they were being laid, they had to be laid by steamships because the actual act of laying them down was highly complicated. You need to find a path across the ocean floor that avoided peaks and cliffs and lay it out, you know, very, very carefully, even during times of high seas. Finally, when we're thinking about this communication and transport revolution, we have to remember our very first couple episodes on the rise of the counted world. The creation of a whole army of statistics that explains everything about society and the economy was also very useful because it simplified the world. As the world expanded, people needed knowledge about it. And statistics, numbers, facts are much more transportable and easily understandable than the conflicting and difficult contextual local knowledge that postmodern people like so much. Let's turn to health now. Now, once you had steamships going to all these places like West Africa and India, you had a troubling problem, and that problem was keeping white people alive. Remember when we talked about sugar a couple weeks ago? Well, sugar was a death trap for African people and European people alike. Because sugar is wood and water hungry, it leads to environmental degradation. People build canals to irrigate the sugar plantations, and they cut down trees to fuel the boilers that have to refine the sugar on the plantations themselves. And this makes a really, really good climate for mosquitoes. And mosquito-borne illnesses like yellow fever and malaria ripped through populations that made sugar. In Africa, these diseases are endemic. Early European colonizers to Africa dropped like flies. I think that uh, British troops in Africa had a death rate of about 50%, and this was not because of guns, this was because of tiny little mosquitoes. The solution was quinine. Quinine is in gin and tonic. It's the tonic that makes gin and tonic so tasty. Wait, is that the gin? Anyway, uh, quinine is the bark of the chinchona tree, which is found in Peru. And Jesuits, I think in like the 16th century, discovered that it helped out with malaria. But quinine was hard to take because it was like a bark and it was really nasty tasting. So it wasn't entirely pleasant, which is a problem when you're dealing with people who are sick and enervated by their malaria infection. It wasn't until the 1840s when chemists isolated quinine from the chinchona bark that it was really able to spread. Now, once quinine was isolated, it spread through colonizing peoples really, really quickly. And soon, predictably, the forests of chinchona in Peru were running out. The solution was that the British and the Dutch started plantations of chinchona trees themselves in strategic areas, in India and Indonesia, making cartels that sold the product around the world. The Indian plantations served uh, the British colonial government, and the Indonesian plantations served the rest of the world. And this simple development of the spread of quinine reduced death rates by malaria incredibly. Instead of having, you know, half of your entire expedition dying when they went to a tropical area like West Africa, it would be almost nobody at all. 
And this meant that colonialism could happen not just by the dregs of empire who had once been going off to Africa, but by ambitious people, by those same people who are in the square mile of the city of London who are daydreaming about where to make their profit. Another development of colonial health is sanitation and water. Now, these harbor cities and these new colonial cities were, like cities in Europe, becoming bigger than cities ever had been ever before. And this was because they were flush with workers, refugees, colonialists, uh, administrators, armies, and this strained pre-modern forms of sanitation. You know, in London this happened. In London, when the population density got too much, uh, the old system of dealing with poop started to break down. The old system was people pooped in a, you know, hole called a cesspit, and then every once in a while the cesspit would be dug out. But when population density got too big, the cesspits filled really, really quickly, and they started to leach into the groundwater supply, causing nasty things like cholera. Well, this also happened in colonized places as well. Indian people, for example, traditionally, you know, shat by the river. But once you got really high population densities, this led to spreads of fecal-borne illnesses like cholera. So colonial governments brought with them indoor plumbing for themselves. And they also needed to provide water for all of these people. A great example comes from Hong Kong. Hong Kong is this small island off the coast of South China, and the British snagged it in the Opium Wars. Um, and it was not very rich in water. This was a problem because waves and waves and waves of refugees kept on fleeing to the stable island of Hong Kong after uh, the continuous breakdown of government in China, after the uh, uh, Taiping Rebellion and the Boxer Rebellion and all those little rebellions that happened in the 19th century. And the whole story of British water engineering in Hong Kong can be summed up like this. There is a heroic engineering feat to create a large reservoir of water. By the time that it's built, the population has grown so that this new supply of water is inefficient and people need to build another heroic engineering feat. By the end of the century, one-third of the entire island of Hong Kong is covered in reservoirs to catch monsoon rains, and it isn't enough. The solution is to build this huge engineering project of the Victoria Dam in the new territories of Kowloon, um, and that's a story for another time. Um, this is part of a huge tradition of imperial hydraulic engineering projects. Um, in fact, many of the techniques, equations, and best practices of the contemporary hydraulic engineering profession was the response of early colonialists dealing with problems in India and Egypt and China. Finally, when we're talking about health, I want to just mention the spread of plants. We don't usually think of plants as this imperial product, but they totally are. Remember that it's the desire for plants that is pushing a lot of the demand of colonialism. Um, people want palm oil in Africa to make soap and lubricants for machines. People want coffee and, and chocolate for the same reason people want coffee and chocolate now. Um, people want the tea from China. People want the gutta percha from Malaysia. People want the quinine from Peru. And it's the demand for all of these plant-based products that is pushing these steam engines and telegraphs ever forward. 
And so part of the colonial project was the massive and intentional exchange of plant products around the world. Remember the quinine that the British and the Dutch were growing in India and Indonesia? Well, it wasn't the same kind of chinchona bark that Peruvians had. The imperialists crossbred quinine in botanical gardens and figured out new ways of growing it so that it would produce a higher concentration of the drug. I think at the end, the bark was seven or 8% quinine. A, a, a similar contemporary example is how the modern marijuana industry is leading to higher and higher and higher concentrations of THC in the bud by crossbreeding and other things like that. But this can be more insidious than quinine or marijuana or tapioca or tea. Plants were the solution to a huge perennial European problem. And that is something that happens from the 15th century. Everybody wants the stuff that China has. China has very good craft goods. It has tea. It has everything that people could want. But China doesn't want anything that the Europeans have, except for silver and coral. Well, in the 19th century, this problem had increased to a fever pitch because British people had a huge taste for tea and they were relying on the Chinese tea plantations and they had nothing to trade with them. Until they started to grow opium in India, the British imperialists created tastes for opium in China that then allowed them to trade opium for tea. And it worked except it hooked an entire country on basically heroin. And finally, we're gonna close out with a quick mention about how this technological revolution affected war. The big advantage of Europeans and particularly British people in the 18th and early 19th century was the fiscal military state. It was the fact that they could raise a large amount of money to send out organized large armies with guns and cannons. But in the middle of the 19th century, colonized people started to develop their own fiscal military state. And this meant that in conflicts, European colonizers had to put more and more people into the field. Um, I think in the 1840s in wars against the sheiks, uh, the British were having a parody of troops on the ground, one for one colonial troop versus colonized troop. This was because the colonized people were learning the British war game. The solution came from advances in technology, and we'll just talk about guns. The old guns that these people in the 18th and early 19th century were firing weren't very good. Uh, they were better than nothing, but more often than not, you had to use them as a spear because they would jam. Um, only seven out of every 10 shots of a flintlock musket actually fired. So you got a slow evolution of gun technology, rifling, which allowed people to fire from greater distances, new kinds of ammunition, beach loading, and so on made the 19th century guns a lot easier and more reliable. The epitome of this is the Maxim gun, the early machine gun that could fire hundreds of shots a minute without anybody really paying attention to it. So this story of the technological basis of colonialism shows us a different perspective than what we had yesterday. Yesterday, colonialism was a story of financial capitalism, of a giant pool of money flowing into areas that it could exploit. And this story is a different story. This story is about the feedback between people 
things and environments. Europeans can go to West Africa more easily because they have steamships. But once they get to West Africa, they encounter mosquitoes, which they then have to solve with quinine. It's this endless, endless feedback between environment, people, and things. But this doesn't mean the global capital, this doesn't mean that the giant pool of money isn't important. Remember, at every step of the way, as technology is increasing, so is the complexity and cost of the technology. Steamships, telegraphs, new kinds of plantations, these are all incredibly expensive. And so they're being funded by the giant pool of money. And so they have to be run in particular ways to ensure that they provide high and reliable rates of return. This pushes new kinds of working. This pushes new kinds of interacting with things. This means that organizations have to be transparent and regular. Thanks very much for listening today. Uh, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for our music. You can find him on Bandcamp. Please give him money. Also, I have to thank Duncan Barton for our wonderful and updated image. Uh, thanks very much to him. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. It really helps. Uh, you can also share us on social media. That also really, really helps. Links to previous shows and to show notes which contain book lists for today are available at the website historian.live. Thanks very much, and I'll see you on Sunday, because tomorrow's my day off. Bye.